Welcome to ContenderCast, a leadership conversation centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. This is Justin Hahnemann. This is the Contender Cast, and our mission is simple to shine a light on bright ideas. And today we're shining like a lot of lights all over high school sports. And um, I'm excited because David Rudolph is joining me on today's podcast. David, thanks for uh, jumping on. Great to see you, Justin. All right. So, David is CEO of this really cool company called Play on Sports. And we're going to get to that in a couple minutes. But, um, uh, David, we met at Georgia tech. And I think when I first met you, we were both co-oping and doing internships and whatnot. And you were working at Turner and you wrote the business plan for Turner South, right? Yeah, that was, uh, you're right. Uh, that was not at the internship, but I think that was, uh, I think it was about a year after graduating from tech. Yep. That's where that idea popped into my head. Yeah. So David and I were at Georgia Tech together. Um, we were super involved in lots of different things and actually have stayed involved with tech in many different ways. Uh, David graduated, went to Turner out of college. I, as, as many of you know, went into consulting. Um, and then an opportunity came up, right, David, for you to, to take an op- take a piece of business and spin it out of Turner and start Play on Sports. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about Play on Sports? Yeah. So, the roots go back to Turner South when we started. So, um, while I was, I came up with that concept, we launched that network and I ended up running it for six years. Um, and then while doing that, I was constantly approached by folks who had sporting events that they wanted on TV. So, it was... I'd call it second tier college basketball or baseball, golf tournaments, things of that nature. Uh, and I'm a big sports fan, both participating Absolutely. and watching. Yep. Uh, but we couldn't make the business model work from a TV perspective. So it was a it was a frustration that we had access to this content, but we just couldn't make it financially viable from a TV perspective. So uh, we ended up selling Turner South, uh, and I rolled into more of a corporate function doing product development. And in that is when I started working on the thesis, and this was 10 years ago. Um, I was a young man back then when I started. But, <laughs> we both were, I guess. A yeah, lot less gray hair and maybe 10 or 15 pounds less back then. But it, the, the core thesis I wanted to figure out was how do you produce and distribute live sporting events that aren't on TV in a cost-effective way? And, and uh, someone told me, hey, you can put video on the internet. And I was like, I don't know how that works, but that's a great distribution channel. So we started inside of Turner, as you said, uh, incubated it there for two or three years. Uh, and then about eight years ago, I left, raised some money, uh, bought the business from Turner and uh, made play on an independent company. Okay. That all sounded really simple and and like it was no big deal. But uh, there were obviously a lot of key steps that went into not only the decision to spin out the business, but also kind of getting it started. So a lot of our listeners are either have built their own company or thinking about building their company. What are some of like the key things you learned in getting this started You know, from the ground up? Uh, we could be here for hours. Uh, <laughs> we have about 25 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> uh, so, look, I, I, I give folks advice all the time not to follow my path because everybody's got their own path. Uh, where mine came from was I actually thought I was going to stay at Turner for three more years. Um, I had a employment contract ready to go, and it was over the 4th of July. was... I going to sign it and picked up the pen and some mythical force stopped my hand from signing the document. Wow. And so I came in the next Monday and resigned. Um, and that was... That had to be a bold move. 
I just had my first child and we had our second on the way and uh, the economy was great, but the economy very quickly turned into the Great Recession. So yeah, I timed it perfectly in terms of the time to leave a cushy corporate job and go venture out on this uh, experiment. But the good thing, what I will tell folks from an advice standpoint is... You, when you go, you have to go. There's no halfway. In. You got to be There's no in. halfway. And if you're not ready, whether that's financially, emotionally, whatever it is, then you're not ready. Don't make the jump until you're 100% committed, both yourself and then the other folks are going to be affected by it, spouse or sure. significant other or other family members. So you got to go and be all in. Okay. So you went and you were all in. You didn't. You decided you were going to leave. So uh, decisions made. So like, what were some of the key steps to getting things figured out, getting the product figured out, getting the company established? Yeah. The, the first thing I learned, and, and I had a lot of folks who advised me and told me this, but it's like being a parent. You don't know it till you go do it yourself the first time. Uh, my job as CEO was only to focus on the money side of things, raising money and revenue. Um, you can hire people to focus on everything else. There's a lot of folks know how to spend money or know how to build products or attract customers. But that's, that's, that's really even from day one to date to now, uh, as a CEO of a startup, like focus on those two things. You're always raising money and you're always selling. You're always trying to generate uh, revenue. Okay. So got it. We got the, the revenue piece and of course the sales piece. So there were two pieces of the company as, as I thought about it, you know, looking back over the time that this has grown, one was or one is kind of the content piece. And so getting content that people want to consume, right? And then the other is the overall kind of business growth and thinking ahead piece. So how did you think about content and figure out that mechanism? And then how have you looked at growth and kind of new opportunities for growing the business? Yeah, you, you broke it down perfectly there. And that's, that's really kind of the chronology of how we attack this business opportunity. Um, I think you always have to be thinking about your business model, uh, both near-term and long-term. But there's some things you have to do in advance of that becoming realistic. So to your point, we focus on the content first. Could we acquire rights? Could we uh, produce this in a cost-effective way? Uh, And was there consumer demand for it? And those are the three things we wanted to prove. Now, at the same time, we had to generate revenue. You know, but candidly, the, the model that we've done the last four years and the one that is going to be the big growth opportunity for us is not something we did for the first five years of the business and direct-to-consumer subscription. So it took us longer to find the right business model uh, than it took us to figure out the content side of things. So I referred to Play on Sports as high school sports, but give us some of the metrics behind the business today, You know, number of consumers, types of sports, schools, like things like that. Yeah. So the overall market, uh, there's obviously high school sports in 51 states. There's 19,000 high schools. There's uh, 10 million kids who play high school sports. Uh, there's 50 million folks who self-identify as fans of it. So it's a it's a massive Big market. market. Wow. But very fragmented. Um, you know, 19,000 high schools is a lot of high schools. That's a lot of folks to deal with. So uh, what we do is we work in every state. So we're in, in all 50 states at this point. We have another component of our business where schools produce their own live events. That's called our school broadcast program. And so we currently work with a little over a thousand schools. So that's that's a lot, but there's still 18,000 that we don't work with. Um, and then all that content uh, of what we produce and then what the schools produce. Last year, it was 25,000 live events. Uh, this upcoming school year, this year we just started, uh, actually, as we sit here yep. today, Tonight's will be about, yep, yep. about 50,000 events this year. 
but that's in an overall market. There's about two and a half million high school events a year. So again, there's a long way for us to go to, to really reach saturation in yeah, high and school. People want to think it's only football, but it's well beyond that, right? I mean, it's all high school sports. Football is really important in the fall, uh, but basketball is amazing in the winter. Wrestling does incredibly well. Wrestling is a top five sport for us. And then uh, we have three really robust seasons. I, I, you know, I used to say fall was the strongest and winter and spring were a slight step back. I'd say all three are, are pretty equivalent at this point. Interesting. Okay. So we've got the content piece. And one of the things I know you shared with me before we got on the air here was, you know, the importance of locking up agreements with the high school athletic association and the whatnot. So how important was that in order to get kind of your, your place in the market? Yeah, some of that was really driven by my experience at Turner. And while we knew we wanted to build this as a platform business, the back to the schools producing thing, the downside of those businesses is uh, you don't really build a great mousetrap. So what I didn't want to do is invest all this time and energy and then have someone come out and have a slightly better product or a slightly cheaper product or something like that or or someone who had a better business model. So we wanted to lock in some exclusive rights um, and that's working with the state associations on the postseason. And so that just gives us a level of protection. So we focused very heavily on that in the front end. That took time, that took money, that took resources. There was certainly a quicker path and a less capital intensive path than that. Uh, but now uh, I think, you know, we've got somewhere around 95% of the, the rights locked up under 15-year agreement. So that, that puts us in a really strong position for the long term. Wow. And so you, you've got the content now, you've got those partnerships set up. And then what about the actual execution? So talk about, and I don't know if everyone's familiar with, how do you actually get content recorded? Like what is the equipment, is it, you know, how does it work at the school level? Yeah. So how it works at the school is really similar to how we do it too. And this was one of the first things we focused on inside of Turner, which was how do you take a game that's produced for TV? And and that's typically when you're watching a a pro game or a college game, that's 30 to $50,000 in production costs. That's your standard. It can be way more expensive, but that's your kind of middle of the road. We wanted to produce games for a thousand dollars or less, just given that these audiences were inherently going to be smaller. So One way you do that is instead of using those big TV production trucks that everybody's familiar with is camera and equipment and technology continues to get cheaper and they're all HD. And so can you take a consumer level camera and can you upgrade from there slightly? So that's really how it is. And to now where a school can effectively produce a really quality broadcast with a laptop, an HD camera, a consumer grade HD camera, a tripod, a small little soundboard and a headset or two. Everything I just described is you know, a thousand fifteen hundred bucks. So that's what it costs to get started uh, producing a game these days. That's pretty awesome. Again, leaning back on your your knowledge of the industry, though, I'm sure that helped in terms of just knowing what kind of equipment was out there and how to think about a production. That's a piece of it. And again, we've benefit just as as the technologies continue to change over the sure. years and get better. We benefit from. We're not driving that innovation. Uh, the Sony's and the Dell computers and all they're the ones driving that, but we're definitely a, a beneficiary of that. So one of the cool things I would think for the schools is their opportunity to have their own broadcast operation, right? I mean, to give a student or a teacher the opportunity to, to be the, uh, the spokesperson for these games and like what percentage do you see of that versus a, a different model where you'd have the cameras just set up and you're watching the, the games? 
Yeah, so you said it, Bass, and I think, you know, if this had existed when you and I were in high school, right. I can guarantee you, you would, I would have been have definitely, on yeah. I would have definitely been the one broadcasting you would, you would have started your, or something. Yes, you would, and you would have been in front of the camera. Uh, <laughs> I'm more a behind-the-camera type guy. Oh, come on. But no, that, that's the, in addition to the business side, that's the real redeeming side of this is you are giving kids the opportunity to, in many cases, they're building their own mini ESPN for their high sure, school. exactly. Um, and sometimes it's the athletes who do it, but sometimes it's the kids who can't participate in sports, who want to be involved or around sports. And, you know, we have dozens of stories where those kids become the, kind of the heroes uh, sure. and get to hang out with the, all the cool kids uh, because right. of the role that they play. So, um, and a lot of those kids, we've been doing this long enough that have kind of moved on from high school and have pursued this in college. Sure. And several of them have graduated and, and moved. So, Wally Ballard, who started this at Westminster yeah. here yeah. in Atlanta, went on to call uh, Georgia Tech baseball, I think, oh, when wow. he was in college. And now he's I may be spilling the secret here, but now he's going to be the sideline voice of Georgia Tech football this wow. year. Wow. Um, so, yeah. Good we've, to know. We've seen a couple of our graduates uh, matriculate all the way through and now be able to pursue this professionally. That's, that's a, I'd say, a side benefit to what you guys offer. So, all right. So, um, back to our kind of story here. So, funding, you've got content, you've got you know an office in Midtown Atlanta in the high-tech space. Now, you need some people that are going to like pay to watch this, right? So, how do you build a following? How did you pursue building consumers that were willing to pay a subscription fee. Yeah. So even landing on that was a little bit of a winding road. Um, and when we first started this, YouTube had just kind of come on the scene. And what all the experts said is, oh, this has got to be ad support. You got to follow YouTube's model. It's got to be ad supported. I was uncomfortable with that. Um, I wanted a dual revenue stream model. And mainly because, again, the core of our product and the core of the audience is around live sports. That has a small shelf life where you can earn. So, for example, if I made a movie or a show on HGTV, that show can play and air for a long period of time. No question. Live sporting events, very valuable when it's live and very unvaluable right after. Unless you want to go take pictures or video of your child playing the sport. Correct. There, I, th I think there are some other monetization opportunities, but they're a fraction of what the live is. So, so that was, we said, all right, it's going to be subscription and advertising. Um but at the time, there was no direct-to-consumer subscription that you could point to. Uh, I mean, people thought, like, no one's going to pay for anything on the internet. Again... And this is before Netflix and... Exactly. And so, like. you wait long enough and, you know, Netflix comes along and blazes the path. And all of a sudden, yes, there are tens of millions of people who will pay for the content uh, that they're interested in. So, that was the decision we made four years ago, uh, was to pursue direct-to-consumer subscription as our primary revenue stream and advertising as our, our second. Once we, Before that, we had kind of wandered all over and looked at and tried a bunch of different stuff. Once we locked into that, that's where we've seen the, the phenomenal growth that we've experienced over the last four years. Yeah. And the, no question. So, where do you go from here? Like, what are the, the top trends that you're seeing in the market that could help you with growing the business? And then we'll talk about some of the, the barriers in a minute. Yeah. I, I think overall, again, just the, the ability to cheaply produce high quality video content continues to get easier and better as we go. So, HD is going to morph to 4K, all that sort. So, those sure. trends help us. Also, the path that Netflix has blazed and others are blazing of... I remember when we when we first started this, someone said, you know, people will be watching this on their phone someday. And I had a BlackBerry. <laughs> right. And I pulled it out and I was I like... I loved my BlackBerry. Yeah. I was like, how is that going to work? I mean, I that know. was the black and white screen. I didn't and ever the, think I'd get off the BlackBerry, I have to tell you. 
Uh, no, I can't imagine not having an iPhone. But yeah, anyway. and now fifty-five uh, percent of our audience is on mobile phones. So, and then take the next step of now, Netflix and others have introduced folks to over-the-top streaming of where you're watching this content on the TV. So, absolutely, all those trends will continue to push our business. Again, folks cutting the cord and not having cable and subscribing to things directly; those are all uh, very prevalent. Plus, I'd say the macro overall trend is if you think back to when we were in college. Yep. Not every co- not every college football game was on TV. No, I mean it's it very rare that you'd find as many as you even have today. That's a consumer expectation. Com- high school is where college was twenty years ago. People still think it's kind of cool and a novelty. Twenty years from now, it will be an expectation. People will. It won't be. Oh, I wonder if my game is available. It's where do I go find it? So again, just the good thing, the lu- the luckiest thing we did is we picked an industry where. All the winds are at our back. We're not really having to fight any massive technology or societal or consumer trend at this point. No question. That's pretty exciting space to be in. That's for sure. Um, what about some of the challenges in growing a business like this? So, I mean, it, it's an exciting space. You've got great content. I mean, you're in athletics and sports and high school sports are only growing and you've got consumers now that are paying a subscription. But along the way, I'm sure you've had some challenges, things that you know, in starting any business you that you've run across yourself, like what, what have been some of those and um, how would you coach others to be kind of wiser to be watching out for those? Yeah. Like, like almost any business, you know, multiple near death experiences. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I mean, wow, <laughs> I didn't think it was gonna be that bold. They're, they're stressful when those happen. Sure. Um, and I would say it even gets more stressful, the bigger you get. I mean, the, the, the biggest weight that I bear we have 55 full-time employees and a couple of thousand freelancers who produce events. I know they're very dependent on if I do my job. Um, and you don't want to let them down, but you also like, you know that they see the opportunity. So um, the stakes just continue to get higher as you go. I would say the biggest thing, the biggest adjustment for me, and, and as I talk to folks who are thinking about making the transition, what I was not prepared for, um, and I don't think you can be prepared for it, but you can be as aware as possible, is the emotional toll that this takes on you. On you. Yes, it is. In what way? Uh, the highs are higher than you've ever experienced and the lows are lower. So that's one. Uh, you know, I call that the, the, the magnitude um, or the amplitude if you right. want to do use yep. the engineering Using term. The engineering term. Yep. Uh, but the frequency is the harder part. Okay. I mean, you know, in a corporate world, you have highs and you have lows. You, have, you measure those in weeks and months and years. Uh, you know, in a startup, you measure it in terms of hours. I mean, there there will be days where in the morning, I think this is the greatest thing ever and we are going to conquer the world. And by the afternoon, I'm pretty convinced we're going to be out of business and it's all over. Right. <laughs> um, so oh just gosh. that whipsaw in terms of how fast it happens and how strong those emotions are, it's hard to deal with. Um, and especially coming from, you know, 10 to corporate 15 years in the corporate yep. environment. That's yep. right. So I had a, it was a very difficult adjustment. I would say now eight years in, I don't think I've solved it, uh, but I'm more used to it. I, I can, I can talk myself out of the high highs and I can talk myself back up from the, the low lows when they happen. And what about from a culture perspective? I've usually, I've asked a couple of our um, podcast guests, you know, to talk about culture and how would you describe the culture here and like what you've tried to put in place and what you've seen evolve? Yeah, I've, you know, I've never been like a real rigid culture guy or like we're going to overtly invest in it. It's just, it's not my style. Um, you know, and I've, I've also learned through this that I have to be very authentic to who I, like I've got to, I've got to be able to admit what I'm good at and I've got to be able to admit what I'm not good at. And I'm not the, I'm not the cheerleader type. And when I try to do it, 
people see through it and it feels inauthentic. And so, uh, but the culture I've, I've tried to build is, uh, and you may have to bleep this out, but <laughs> it's, it's real simple. It's a no assholes. The good thing about starting your own company, I don't have to work with anyone that I don't really enjoy. And so we try to build like a culture. Like the rest of us do that work in big companies and can't control that, right? I mean. Right. We've tried to build a culture where we genuinely enjoy the people that we work with. That that doesn't mean we always agree on everything or we get along. Or it doesn't mean we don't have big arguments, but there's a level of mutual respect amongst everyone that everybody's showing up, working hard doing their thing. And when we have a disagreement, we're going to come to a conclusion and we're going to move forward. Um, so, and in, we have made a lot of mistakes in terms of bringing folks in who didn't fit that or didn't. Right. And, you but you know, can make a decision then quickly, right? We, I mean, much do, faster than some of the larger companies. And, I t- you know, back to lessons learned, you know, I wish I had made some of those decisions quicker. When you know it, you know it. And that's when you just need to go ahead and make that move. And that's what I know I've seen on the big company side and the places I've been that it, it's always a struggle. And you might know right away that someone's not a good fit, but you got to go through a process and it may or may not. And, you know, all the things that go with it from an HR perspective are a challenge. Um, so what about from the, pers- and finally, what about from the perspective of y- your board of advisors, not only your literal board, but others that have been, I'll call it that next level of advisors that have helped you along the way or given you some coaching or their lessons learned. How important have those people been and how important is it to select that group um, correctly? Yeah, it's, it's another, I think it's a great idea. It's not something that I did straight out of the gate in a formal way. Um, not intentionally. It was one of those, you know, this kind of happened and you're running a hundred miles an hour and I never kind of hit pause to put that together. I've always though kept a short list of folks that of people who I know and trust and who have a diverse background that I can bounce ideas. So I've always had an informal board of advisors that I could, could talk to. The biggest benefit for me in this transition though was uh, when we made the decision to start the company and, and initially have it placed at the ATDC down at Georgia Tech. And that the main reason there, this was my first time doing this. That, right. First time being a CEO, <laughs> first time raising money, first time I was the first employee and you know there were four employees to start, first time setting up a fax machine sure. and a printer and all those fax sorts of machine. things. Fax yeah, machine. Back when we had those. <laughs> um, so to be in an environment where there were 20 other CEOs around who... I could walk down the hall and say, hey, I've got to put together a comp plan for my sales team. Can you tell me what you do? That was probably the most beneficial board of advisors that I had was just even they had their business had nothing to do with we we did. Sometimes they were bigger, sometimes they were smaller. But uh, to have 20 folks who were in a similar situation that I could bounce a question off or an idea off and get some very relevant real-time feedback on, that was invaluable for me for those first three or four years. I'm sure. And for those that don't know, the ATDC in Atlanta is a basically a startup environment or incubator environment for small companies um, as they're looking to get started and grow and, and, and put, putting all of the right structure and infrastructure around them to help them be successful. And now, you know, there's, I, I can't keep up. I think there's a dozen or so of them around Atlanta there at are. the time. This, it, it was, was one of the only one ones. Of the only, yeah, it was really the only option. So again, I think if, you know, if you're looking to start a company either straight out of college or make this transition, I would strongly encourage some of that environment, at least for the first few years, because you're going to be surrounded by like-minded people who can help you figure out some of these things that you've never experienced yeah, before. and they've walked the path before. Um, all right. So finally, so where do, where does our listening audience go to find info on play on sports? How can they subscribe? How they can, how can they sign up? 
Yeah, everything uh, is consolidated at uh, nfhsnetwork.com. It's a mouthful, but um, (laughs) the NFHS is the equivalent of the NCAA uh, in high school. And so uh, they're our partner in this. uh, And the members of the NFHS are the 51 state associations. They're partners in this as well. So uh, four years ago, we rebranded to that. Um, So again, it's nfhsnetwork.com. And all the content's available. It's a monthly, simple monthly subscription at nine ninety five, and you can watch any of the 50,000 games from around the country for that. That is awesome. All right. Well, David, thanks for jumping on today. Play on. All right. Thanks, Justin. For more information on today's topic or to access additional leadership content, tools, and resources, check out contenderbrands.com. Also, you can download other ContenderCast episodes directly via the Apple iTunes App Store and Google Play Store. And remember, every winner started as a contender. Contender.